The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Steve Phillips is the author of Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. His book was my political Bible in the run-up to the 2016 election, but with Donald Trump in the White House, is that new majority even real? Absolutely, says Phillips. And completely lost to history is that that is the majority that gave Hillary Clinton three million more votes than Donald Trump in 2016. Phillips breaks it all down, the intensity gap between Trump voters and Democratic voters, and how the inability of the largely white Democratic leadership to inspire people of color, the base of the party, is a problem staring the Democratic Party dead in the face. Steve Phillips, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. And and this is a, an auspicious moment because this is your first time on the podcast. But I've been talking about you for years now. How many years? Uh, two years when the, first, uh, when the book first came out. Right. And the book we're talking about and the book I've been writing about and the book I've been talking about for two years is called Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. The, your book was like a Bible to me during the 2016 election because it convincingly laid out the case using electoral data, demographic data, census data, that there really is a new American American progressive majority in right. the country, 51%. Right. Talk about that, and then we'll talk about what happened. Right. Yeah, well, that, I mean, I, I appreciate, uh, and I would frequently get people say, did you hear K-Part mentioned you? I'm like, wait, when was that? Right? <laughs> and so I really appreciate the amplification. Um, yeah, the, the country has changed profoundly demographically since 1965, and primarily around the immigration laws that were passed at that time. The US, official U.S. policy used, was it officially a whites-only policy, in that the literal definition to become a U.S. citizen was to be a free white person. And that was good law until the mid-1950s, and it was the practice of the country until the mid-1960s. And then not coincidentally, it's the same laws that Trump's trying to un undo. He calls this um, uh, chain migration, which really family re reunification issues. But bottom line is it took down the whites-only signs so that we could have immigration that more reflects the diversity of the world. And so the U.S. went from being 12% people of color in the mid-1960s to almost 40% today. And so what that did is it changed the electoral calculus because there's always been about a third plus of whites who vote progressive, who are, who are progressive, even back to, you know, abolitionist days and the civil rights movement. But that, uh, what I call meaningful minority of whites, has not been able to win elections themselves. And so they've had to compete with the whites who are in the middle against the conservative whites. But now there's so many people of color that aligned with the progressive white coalition, that is actually a majority of people. And that's the majority that elected Obama, even more importantly, it's the majority that re-elected Obama. When Obama lost five million white votes and still got re-elected and completely lost the history, is that that is the majority that gave Hillary Clinton three million more votes than Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah, I, and, I went, and I want to get to, to the election, but one thing that you, you point out in the book, and just to put some numbers to this, you write in the book, progressive people of color now comprise 
23% of all eligible voters in America. That still holds, right? Yes. That's still holds. Yes. And progressive whites account for 28% of all eligible voters. The new American majority electoral equation requires securing the support of 81% people of color and 39% of whites. Given, given that last sentence and the results of the 2016 election, did, did that hold up? Did Hillary Clinton get 81% people of color and 39% of whites? She got slightly less uh, on both counts. She got about 77, 76% of people of color and 37% of whites. And so what was interesting about that is that, and yet, she still won the popular vote by 3 million votes. And then I had calculated around the, the Obama numbers. Obama would have won the popular vote if he had gotten as low as 36.5% of the white vote. Mm -hmm. And so Hillary's getting 37%. It seems to show that that, that roughly is the, the, the floor there. Now, one interesting um, statistic that you had in the book that I put out there over and over and over again, because people kept talking about how, oh, my God, she's having problems with the white vote, or, oh, my God, Obama's having problems with the white vote. And that is you make a point of reminding people that the last Democratic candidate for president to win the majority of the white vote, which was 58 percent, was President Johnson. Right. Right. In 1964. Right. Yeah. Talk about the significance of 64. Yeah. So, I mean, Johnson uh, is, is quoted to have said when he signed the Immigration Act, when he signed the Voting Rights Act, coming a year after the Civil Rights Act, that so we may have lost the South for a generation. And so that is really what you saw happening is that the South used to be democratic when it was really just about the interest and the policies of white people. But as we, it began to be more about the empowerment of black uh, people, uh, racial equality issues, many and most of the whites moved away over to the Republicans. And so since there has, there has not been a Democrat to get a majority of the white vote. And so this notion about there's all this potential. And then one of the things that's uh, least understood is there's this myth, and the New York Times had written about this, and I, I commented on it in my book, that Bill Clinton did did great with uh, white working class voters and with white voters and had this broad tent and all these people came to Bill Clinton versus Obama who had been much more narrow in his approach. Obama did better than Bill Clinton did. And people have completely eliminated any analysis of the impact of Ross Perot. And so mm -hmm. Ross Perot ran in 92. Uh, Bush Sr.'s percentage of the white vote dropped from 60% to 40%. Holy and smoke. so there was a ton of white people moved over to that vote, which then allowed the core Democratic vote to actually be enough for Bill Clinton to be elected. So it is a critical point is that this notion about there is uh, some, you know, uh, glory days in the past where all of the white voters are supporting Democrats is not supported by any empirical data around how, how the elections have transpired. Right. And, and you're right. The historical average since 1972 is... 39.91% of the white vote goes to the Democrat. President right. Obama won re-election in 2012 with 39% of the white vote, which was down from 43%, which by historical average, as you're right, was, was high. Right. Um, and that's reflecting the historic nature. But even with, what, what is that, four percentage points fewer white votes, President Obama still won re-election that's, that came up to 5 million fewer votes. So is it that he was able to backfill with people of color? Yes. So that one of the other uh, stats that you know, we talk about in the book, and actually you know, you've used some of your columns too, is that 
In the first chapter of the book, we call it a uh, uh, new American majority, 51% and growing every day. So every single day, there are roughly 7,000 new people of color added to the population uh, as opposed to uh, roughly 1,000 whites. And that's just because the country was so exclusively white for so long, most old people are white. And most young people now are people of color. The majority of uh, children under age five are people of color. So the four years between uh, 2008 and 2012, the country got more diverse. And so more people of color came into the electorate, they, uh, aged 18, they became citizens. And that comprised the, uh, the numbers that Obama was able to backfill mm-hmm. to win his reelection. An- another stat that you have that is mind-blowing, jumping off of what you were just talking about in terms of the of young people of color, roughly 150,000 young people, nearly all U.S. citizens, turn 18 every month, and 42% of them are people of color. Yes, and that's even gotten more... That was from 2016 numbers. And right. so we act, I'm having a column in The Nation talking about how there are more 17-year-olds in uh, Florida and Arizona than the margin of defeat in those, in those two states. Oh. And so those are closely contested elections and that you know, we lost Arizona by 91,000. There's like you know 100-plus thousand 18-year-olds um, there and then 200-plus thousand in, uh, uh, in Florida. And the 17-year-olds are 45% people of color. And so as these, as I said, each day, each week, each month, the electorate gets more and more diverse and essentially more and more progressive because of that composition. Well, I I was going to bring this up later, but since you brought up that stat about Florida and and 18-year-olds, two things have happened that... um, that make Florida, I think, loom large in 2020. And that is Parkland right. and the activism of the Parkland kids, the incredible activism of the Parkland kids, but also Puerto Rico. Yes. Can you talk about the impact of both of those things, uh, either on your research or on your thinking? Right. Yeah, well, Puerto Rico is something that people don't appreciate at all. First of all, people don't understand that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Right. Uh, which is something that the current occupant of the Oval Office does not really understand. Um, so all, any, all the people displaced from Puerto Rico who are moving to Florida are U.S. citizens and eligible to vote. And so that's a population right there which is making Florida more uh, brown in terms of the Latino uh, population there. And so that's a often overlooked and quite potentially significant. And Florida has been, really since at least 2000, right, in Bush-Gore, one of the closest contested states. I mean, it was the state that Obama won by the smallest margin in 2012. I think it's like 74,000 votes. So to have this many uh, uh, Puerto Ricans coming into the population there can be transformative in terms of the election there. And then second, um, as you mentioned, is Parkland, the unleashing of the young people, their leadership that they're actually showing, their opposition to, and then they're very diverse to start with. There's a lot of these young people. And then their sentiments is they're not as um, cautious or timid as a lot of, you know, certainly Democratic um, politicians have been. And it could play itself out in the, in the governor's race there as well, right? So Andrew Gillum, the mayor of Tallahassee, uh, young African-American, late 30s, he was sued by the NRA because he would not do their bidding because he fought it, He fought for gun control laws in Tallahassee. And so he's already stood up to the, to the NRA. And so if he could put together African-American support, young people support, um, as well as people who want uh, gun control, 
that could be the path to get Andrew uh, to win the uh, primary election for governor. Mm-hmm. There. Is it surprising to you that, uh, given your re- your research, Parkland, the Parkland kids, the Black Lives Matter kids, young people, young adults, and the the young people fighting for DACA, that they're all that these movements are have all been happening within the last five years. And when you look at the, the March for Our Lives, the Parkland kids made sure that Black Lives Matter um, activists and also DACA activists were part of what they were doing. Right. Yeah. So the young people get it. Right. I mean, even from the, the, the inauguration day when all these across the country, all these high school students walked out of their uh, out of their high schools to protest. They understand what this president represents and stands for, and they are squarely against it. And so they're not afraid to stand up and say, no, we're for Black Lives Matter. We're for immigrants. We're you know, for gun control. And they have much more courage and uh, intensity of their 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 uh, their voices than a lot of people in democratic politics do, who are still too timid and still too worried about Trump supporters, rather than looking at the fact that most people in the country do not support Trump and even did not support him um, in the election. All of this sounds great, and and it makes complete sense to me. But then you have things that that are that are kind of hanging out there that I wonder if they will blunt the impact of like these numbers. The key thing I'm thinking of is voter suppression right. and and the voter suppression laws in various states. It, will that blunt the impact or have these young kids, this generation that gets it, the Democratic Party um, not-for-profits that progressive not-for-profits that are trying to ensure that people who want to vote can vote. Will they are they on top of it enough to make sure that these voter suppression efforts actually don't succeed? Well, that's the battle that's taking place right now, and it really is a sprint in a race. And I think some of the or much of the intensity of the support that came out for Trump was that the people who saw what's happening in this country knew and knew correctly that this was their last best chance to hold back and to return to a majority white uh, mindset in a priority white country. And so they really came out with that, that intensity. So this is the battle. And so the country gets more diverse, trying to get more people to vote, and they're trying to erect as many obstacles through voter suppression, through gerrymandering, through deportations as they can. And so it's a, it's a foot race between the progressives and between the conservatives. The conservatives know very much what they're doing, very clearly, very deliberate, um, particularly in, uh, in North Carolina, right, where the courts have found that they were asking for information. The Republican legislators like, well, what do black people rely upon to vote? And they were specifically passing laws to make it harder for black people to vote, I mean, very intentionally and consciously. Having said all of that, the results of uh, uh, 2017 are very encouraging. And so particularly things like Alabama, where mm-hmm. which is like the birthplace of voter suppression and uh, white supremacy within this country. Cradle of the Confederacy. Confederacy. Despite all of that, black people came out in large numbers to elect Doug, Doug Jones to the Senate in that special election there. And so that's the battle. They are definitely going to try to erect these barriers to voter suppression. I don't feel that they will uh, they will be determinative if we're sufficiently organized and 
um, investing in getting people out to the polls. How much damage, though, can be done? You, you talk about talk about it now being a foot race between progressives and, and, and conservatives. And to my mind, the conservatives now have a head start since they're in control of most of the governorships. They're in control of the House and the Senate for whatever that's worth because they don't do anything. And and also the presidency, which ha- which holds a whole lot of sway. So am I right in thinking that they have a head start or is that simply because of the trappings of power? I think they have a head start, but they don't. No, they have a head start. They have a head start more significantly in terms of um the investments that they've made. So mm-hmm. a lot of things like the Koch brothers have been doing, creating Latino organizations like Libre, mm-hmm. that they've been very intentional around trying to peel off some people of color on the one hand. I talk in the book about seduction and suppression, and they're kind of moving on, on both fronts in that regard. Um, yet they're pushing this boulder up the mountain of the demographic changes. And so the numbers are not in their favor, and time is not in their favor in that regard. So. I think that that's all taking place. And then I think what's most hopeful about 2018 is that there is usually, and we have seen so far that there is, an enthusiasm, an enthusiasm gap between the party that holds the White House versus the out, out party. And so the Democratic turnout has been much higher across the board since Trump took office than Republicans because they feel like they got their guy, and they do. Mm-hmm. And so they were motivated to come out in large numbers in 2016. So they wanted to stick it to the system or whatnot or make their stand for you know white supremacy. But they got it now. And so they don't have that same animus that they had had previously. So one of the things about the midterms that you bring up in the book that is really a cautionary tale, even though we've got this major enthusiasm now, thanks to President Trump, is that in the 2010 midterm elections, after the historic election of Barack Obama in 2008 with Democratic participation way, way up, went through the floor in 2010 and we got Republican control of of the House. And then you go to 2012, Barack Obama is reelected. And then in 2014, participation goes through the floor. And in the 2014 midterm elections, the Senate flips from Democrat to Republican. This is also a midterm, as you pointed out, a midterm election year. Are we going to see presidential year level Democratic Party participation or are we going to see slightly better than normal midterm Democratic participation, but presidential level participation among Republicans and conservatives who want to ensure that the Republicans maintain control of both the House and the Senate? Well, that's going to be the test. Um, in terms of what actually transpires this year. And so, uh, fortunately, in pretty much every election, special election since Trump got elected, there's been a dramatic enthusiasm gap that's statistically demonstrable. Many more of the Democrats who voted in 2016 are coming back out and voting again um, versus the uh, Republican turnout is not at the same levels. Even in the, the marquee race, the Georgia 6 uh, congressional race, mm-hmm. of, John, of, Ossoff. John Ossoff's race, I actually had done this uh, analysis. I did this piece in the, uh, um, the nation last year talking about Democrats don't need any more Republican votes. Any, they don't need to, any Trump voters in order to win the uh, House back if they have high turnout. And then what I had shown for uh, Ossoff's race is that he would need 
103% of the Clinton number within that district in order to win. He got 100%. And so that's why he just fell short. Mm -hmm. But he got 100% basically of the Clinton voters. And the Republicans got like 80 or something percent in that regard. So even in that race, there was this gap. And so if that gap persists throughout this election, then Democrats will take back the House. But it's not a given, particularly since the Democratic base has many more financial obstacles and life obstacles to participate in the electoral process. Right. And one of the things, because I'm stuck on this number that you you talked about at the very beginning of this interview in talking about Hillary Clinton, in that she got 77 percent of vo- votes of color. Right. Whereas your stats say that she needed you, you need to have 81 percent. That's a four percent. Yeah. Four percent. For a percentage point drop, that's a lot. You also write in the book that people of color vote in lower numbers because many of them feel that most of the U.S. policy agenda has little relevance to their lives. Does that reflect that that 77 percent for Hillary Clinton? And is there a danger that people of color still think that the U.S. public policy agenda um, has little relevance to their lives? Right. And that's the essential dilemma of democratic politics is that many people Democratic leadership are more concerned about alienating Trump voters, white working class voters, than they are about inspiring voters of color. And so they've made this calculation that there's, the voters of color aren't as important, frankly. And so that's the dilemma. Now it's starting to, whether we're gonna talk about immigration or are people gonna talk about um, uh, gun control issues, you can talk about uh, police accountability, is that, which is also an interesting piece under the radar there's a whole trend happening of focusing on uh, district attorney races and that a lot of these pe- people are doing focus groups and showing that there's much more interest in district attorney races among people of color at the local level because they interact with the criminal justice system. And so it's almost like a bottom-up effect by focusing mm-hmm. on that regard. So that's the dilemma and that the you know, different trends and that's the internal debate taking place within the Democratic Party and the progressive movement around how much to emphasize which set of issues, which is tied to which voters you're trying to impact and influence. Well, I mean, as the title of your book says, brown is the new white. (laughs) And towards the end of the book, if I remember correctly, you make the case that the, well, maybe it's actually throughout, the Democratic Party has to stop putting white people first. In terms of the, as you were saying before, as the focus of all vote getting, vote mining operations, that if they want to win, they have to start appealing directly to people of color. Right. And that's that's the again, this is the dilemma that we're facing and that what people don't realize or appreciate about Obama's looks. I was trying to recalculate. Well, how much money did Obama's campaign spend on uh, targeting people of color? And as I thought about it, I was like, well, it's all of it. Right. <laughs> All of it was saying, elect this black man president. Right. And so that's one approach versus, you know, Clinton's team went back to an all white ticket. Most of the advertising by the super PACs was targeting white swing voters. And so because they see white as primary, white swing voters as primary. And that is the core argument of my book is that now that it's the voters of color that have to be primary if you actually want to win. Because that's the growing population. That's the cornerstone of this new American majority. Right. And, and you, you, you argue that campaigns themselves, from who's running them to where the, where the campaign spending goes, 
plays a plays a big part. Like if the campaign if the campaign hierarchy is all white and all of the campaign spending goes to um, white operatives, white ad firms, white this, white that, that they're going to completely miss one voters of color, but a whole cast and crew generation of operatives and political operatives of color who are out there who have ideas and proven track records who aren't getting any play on the national stage. Right. Absolutely. And so there's a lot talk about the cultural competence of being able to run an election. And that that really is what uh, fundamentally happened in the 2016 election is Trump has great cultural competence in terms of how to rile up uh, anxious white people. And the Democrats did not have anybody in their team who understood either how to inspire people of color or how to inspire and speak to and summon white people to their highest and best selves. And so they just tended to ignore what was actually taking place. And so where are the operatives that have the lived experience, the political experience working in these communities to be able to bring up people? And so there's like in the Virginia election, right, that uh, there's this woman in Virginia runs, runs New Virginia Majority, Tram Nguyen, the Vietnamese woman works in this multiracial coalition. They do a, a deep work in the communities of color, turning out large numbers of voters of color. So why isn't she a national household name? Why isn't she have a, a tens of millions of dollars being shov- shoveled to her by the big donors? Instead, it tends to be the same crop um, of you know white people who have a high profile. Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow, and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives, and perhaps one day, yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. Um, this is sort of ignoring uh, what's happening with with voters of color. Do you think with the with the midterm elections that at least on this piece of, of operatives, have you seen any signs of change that uh, those things are getting better? I think they're getting better uh, incrementally or maybe quantitatively, not necessarily qualitatively. And so there was more, there was a fair amount of work done and some resources moved in Alabama um, to, you know, some of to as the hidden figures of that uh, movement. A lot of number of black women, you know, Dewana Thompson and Latasha Brown, who were, had deep ties and were very sophisticated operatives who played a significant role in getting out the black vote um, in that election. But they're still not in charge of the biggest budgets. Right. I mean, out of the in the 2016 election, every single organization on the Democratic progressive side had a budget of 30 million dollars or more was run by a white person. Every single one. And so I mean, we do have Tom Perez over at DNC. And he's I think Tom's trying to make some progress. The DCCC, you know, Dan Senna is a Latino who runs that now. So there's progress in that regard. I still worry that the fundamental strategy has not embraced the kinds of shifts that have to take place. And it's even more pronounced because of the opposition that we're against. I mean, this is a 
president who was unapologetic and aggressive about promoting and elevating white people. And you can't just combat that by ignoring it. And that's the default position of many in the Democratic leadership. And just want to be clear, we just want to be clear that when we're talking about white people, we're not saying white people are bad. What we're saying is, or what you're saying, and even in my questions, making it clear that when you have a diverse campaign staff and when you have a strategy that brings in all people, that that is one that is successful. And the only way you can have that happen is if you have operatives who look like the district, the state, or the country, depending on your uh, on the campaign that you're running. And have had the lived experience of the voters in that district. And so who have had to deal with what it how a voter experiences a confrontation with the police, whether it's just seeing the lights in your, in your mirror when you're driving along, who have relatives who may be facing deportation and immigration status. That's a lived experience that is very intense, but it's very particular. And most white political leadership doesn't have that. Some do. And so they're saying it's not a question of exclusively the pigmentation. It has to do with the experiences and the knowledge base in a country that has been founded upon white supremacy. So then how do progressives appeal to Trump voters? And I'm not talking about the the hardcore white nationalists, 30-something percent who always who always support him but those who voted for him because they hated her uh, because they don't like Democrats and they really hated her so how do progressives say to them he doesn't have your best interests at heart we do what's that message do you it think? has to do with what is the country that we believe in and so this whole notion of make America great again it was the Daily Show had done this they went to the Republican convention and they were going around saying well, one was America great, right? <laughs> and so and how did that relate to whether people of color could vote and whether women could vote when people of color enslaved? So this Trump is very unapologetic around basically saying this is a straight white male Christian country. And that's who we are as a country. And we're going to restore that order within the country. And so the way to combat that is to say that's not who we are is that we are a multiracial, multicultural country that embraces people from all different backgrounds and celebrates that. That's a different vision of what this country is. And I think we have to force people to take a stand. Which side are they on around that? And I think the Democrats too often let those who drift to Trump off the hook to not have to make the decision that, yes, I'm consciously standing with this pro-white public policy and this leader. But doesn't that run the risk of turning off those very people. I mean, we all know how hard it is to talk about race in general when you just strip the politics out of it. And now you're going to voters and you're saying, okay, now you have to choose between the country you love and this white nationalist who's sitting who's sitting in the Oval Office and coming up with all sorts of policies that will take us back to the 18 to, <laughs> to the 1800s. That's such an uncomfortable a position to put people in where they just might say, you know, I, I'm not a part of it. I don't want any part of this vision, this vision thing that you're talking about. Steve. Right. But that's why I feel like you have to, you do have to draw a clear line in the sand in that. And then if you look at the numbers and that there's a solid, uh, consistent, meaningful minority of whites who have 
voted Democratic and who have sided you know, certainly with Obama in both of his elections. So that exists. You have a growing population of people of color who will be more inspired and motivated when you speak in that regard. And then I think there is a sliver of what you know you could call white swing voters who, if you frame it properly, I think will say, no, that's not the country that I believe we live in. Now, you could get some of those people back. You know, I, that argument of this is the kind of country I want to live in, that, that deeply patriotic message works for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I completely get it. it. It will tug on my heartstrings. But after the last, you started running in 2015. So after the last three years, I, I can't imagine that there are many people in the country for whom that very patriotic message will even resonate with them, that they are so they feel that the system is so rigged and so corrupt that they're willing to go with this president because he's promised to rig it and corrupt it for them. Right. And I don't think that we'll get them, but I don't think we need them to win. And so my my issue is we will legislate in their interest. And that's really what Obama did. They didn't support Obama. They hated Obama from the beginning to, uh, to the end. And yet he still provided health care for every single one of them. Right. And so that's what I feel like is the, our approach is we'll, we'll do public policy, which will lift everybody up and will benefit everybody. But let's not waste our precious time and resources trying to get their votes. Can you are you able to explain to me? I could understand during the campaign the Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump voter. What I'm having a hard time with is the two-time Obama supporter who then flipped to Trump. Can, can that be laid solely at the feet of just racism? Oh, and sexism. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So that's a you know, completely overlooked element of this election. Even in the, the black vote, Hillary got 94% of the, white, of the black male vote, but her drop was in the black on the black female vote, or drop in the black male vote. Um, so I think that's a, a not inconsequential factor. But that, the greatest myth of the 2016 election is that there was a, a meaningful number of people who voted for Obama and flipped to Trump. There's very little evidence to support that that actually took place oh. much at all. Particularly looking at, uh, if you look at Wisconsin as the clearest example, Trump got fewer voters in Wisconsin than Romney did. So if all these people abandoned the Democrats to go over to Trump, how did Trump's vote drop as well? And so what happens, a lot of people went to third and fourth party. Oh, yeah, Jill Stein. Jill Stein and Gary Johnson had a big increase in their vote um, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, uh, Florida, and, and uh, Pennsylvania. That, and then African Americans not voting in as large uh, numbers that they did. Those, those were much bigger problems than what the narrative is that all these people, like I, I actually wound up going to the uh, West Virginia to the Democratic senators retreat uh, where they kind of debrief right after the 2016 election. And they had these panels um, with, they were calling Obama Trump voters. And as I began to think about it, I was like, Obama got slaughtered in West Virginia both times. <laughs> so that this notion that there's some ton of great, you know, reservoir of voters in, in, who support Obama and then went over to Trump is just not even the case. There may have been a few in that in that state, but the lion's not even the lion's share, the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters did not go to Trump. They either voted for Hillary, who got almost the exact same number of votes as Obama did, went third and fourth party, or didn't vote. That's more what happened. 
black women. So 94% of them went for Hillary Clinton. Um, and that's a, the reason why she won the, the female vote in 2016 is because of black women. And then in all of the special elections that we've seen, Virginia, Alabama, you look at the numbers and it's because black women came out in droves to vote for the Democrat. What obligation does the Democratic Party have to black women? Well, I mean, there's not what obligation. There's always what, what would be the intelligent thing to do if you want to win and keep winning. <laughs> and so, like, for instance, there's, an, you know, in terms of the, the unsung or unknown operatives, right? So Jessica Bird, you know, is a young, you know, 30-year-old, uh, 30 not just 30-something, African-American political consultant leader who really only works with black women candidates who are mainly running for mayor. Jessica is brilliant and a genius and should be, the, at the very top level of the Democratic Party leadership within this country. That's what I'm saying. They have to find those people and put them into the very top positions and not just give lip service or say, yeah, we'll do something over here. But who is actually charting strategy and most importantly, cutting checks of sizable nature based upon that strategy and where are black women in that mix? Well, okay, talk more about Jessica, the, the, the wunderkind 30-year-old. What's her magic? Why, why is she brilliant? What makes her brilliant? Well, she's been at this for a while since she uh, you know, was in her late teens. So she has a lot of political experience, but she has uh, deep, again, cultural knowledge married with electoral skill. And so how do you communicate in a campaign in a way that brings out the candidates' cultural connections and social connections within the various parts of the community? Um, so she has much more knowledge on how to position someone for that and to not be, to not be apologetic about those parts of their identity in a way that many, many white consultants are. Is there a, a guarantee that, and, and this popped into my head um, because of the, what we were talking about in terms of Florida and um, young people and how the 18-year-olds and you know, they're going to be voting. Is there a guarantee that they'll actually vote progressive? Well, this gets back to how we define the terms of the debate and are we drawing a line in the sand and force people to make a decision and that, I mean, there's nothing good about this administration, but the, 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 the reality is that the terms of the debate are being defined very clearly by Trump. And so it's not a question of you're going to vote progressive in the abstract, but are you going to vote to ban Muslims and deport Mexicans and lock up people of color and roll back protections on uh, investigations of campus you know, sexual assault? That's what we're talking about in this country right now. Per, I mean, are you progressive or are you patriotic? Is it sort of the alliterative phrasing that comes to mind? Yeah, but I think that's also where Obama did a good job around uh, integrating the two, right? And, you talk, and, and summoning people's sense of patriotism by saying in America, we do big things, such as providing health care for all of our people and that tackling issues of like poverty, et cetera. There's a way to tap that patriotic sentiment, you know, in a, and push it in a direction that's much more progressive. Should Democrats fight? This is a question I, I, I ask politicians and operatives, Democrats, all the time, because I can see the, the benefits of just 
coming out with the club and going toe to toe with Donald Trump on Twitter and everywhere to just fight with him. And then I see the argument that says, no, because when you do that, you end up looking worse than than the president, which is like shocking to me. But I see it. You see it. All the look, Marco Rubio tried it. And after he did the one joke and everyone was like, oh, my God, this is great. But then he came out looking like a boob. Yeah, it's harder for Republicans because there's not as but because Trump's base is a very sizable percentage of the Republican voters. And so it's much harder for someone else. Where are you going to turn to and where are you going to go? And then plus they're so rabid that people are afraid of, which is why all these people are resigning. And Bob Corker basically said this, right, that Trump's you know, voters are tribal. And so this is driving him out of politics. It's different on the Democratic side. Um, that there are the the and this was fascinating about this this presidency, they have made no attempt to expand their base. Usually, none, right? None, and he he lost the population to start with, and so we should be consolidating that majority who is not with him, and so that does require not in an ad hominem ad hominem fashion going at him, but being very explicitly opposed to the values and ideals and policies that he's putting forward. And that being said, folks firmly believe that we're we now sitting at 2020 brother man could win again well he won he apparently won the first time so nothing <laughs> we can't take anything for granted <laughs> right and so but i don't think at any i would not say in any stretch of the imagination is he the front runner so republican is not republican is not won the popular vote in this country i mean if you give it to george bush in 2004 Mm-hmm. That's the only time Republicans won a popular vote since George Bush Sr. in 88. And so this notion that— God, It's hard to believe that's like are, 20 years ago. I remember right. it like yesterday. Yes. So he could easily, um, uh, if people don't turn out and vote, but the numbers are not there in his favor if we do our job right. And that's, and that's the key. If people turn out and vote— when when the the was it the Pennsylvania Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, issued its ruling and basically said uh, you got to come up with what f- new districts that right. Democrats immediately said oh my God that's a pickup of six seats yeah and yeah if you come out and vote. if you come out and vote right do you think that um, the the Democratic Party even with the enthusiasm and everything is enthusiasm enough? And hatred of the and like super hatred of the president, is that enough to get people out to vote, or is it a combination of the anger and whatever the message is from whichever candidate running in whatever district? Well, it's also about the investment, and so are you, and so rather than wasting so much money on television ads, so that is the mistake of Ossoff's campaign. Forty million dollars, the most expensive congressional race ever in this country. Almost all of it's been on television ads trying to persuade people who had supported Trump that they had made a mistake rather than investing in going door to door, finding more of the black voters in that district and getting them to the polls. The voters who are most Democratic also have the most obstacles in their lives. And so you have to invest in community-based organizations who have relationships. You have to invest in staff. You have to invest in helping them with child care and transportation to be able to overcome the obstacles that they face. That's where the money should go so they can translate the enthusiasm into votes. And that's what the imperative of 2018 is. And so then that that Ossoff lesson of you spent too much money on TV and should be spending it in other places, 
Has that lesson been learned and has that manifested itself in any of these special elections that we've seen since then? There was a pretty good job in Alabama on the Democratic side of actually getting out the vote. And so that was encouraging. The default is still way too much. They're going to run television ads. Most of the, the, like the super PACs, the independent side, their default is either do television or digital or something like that rather than the old-fashioned, unglamorous work of hiring people from the community to organize and turn out their neighbors. How do you get over the, the, the negative connotation of what you just said, of going and hiring people in the communities? In the old days, that was sort of sneeringly referred to as walking around money, you know, get out the, air quotes, get out the vote money, which translation, it sounded like graft. Uh, what you're saying is, uh, no, actually, you need to do this and and do it well. Right. And it also, it, 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 that's why also having year-round investment. And so instead of just dumping a ton of money in the television ads a few weeks before the election, which is how what the standard playbook is, but to provide staffing, infrastructure, people on the ground in a year-round basis to, so it's not just even voting, it's civic engagement. And so who's showing up? at town hall meetings, who's showing up at city hall and school board meetings, dealing with issues that actually face the community in a day-to-day ongoing basis. You need community-based infrastructure to facilitate that kind of civic engagement. Okay, so in the in the two years since I've been, you know, waving, waving your book around, Brown is the New White, what are two or three things that have popped up since the publication of this book that I should that I should know. Yes, and be well, aware first of my staff would shoot me if I didn't highlight. So the the new edition is out, and so the new uh, second revised edition of the book is just out um, that looks at the 2016 election and analyzes more what actually happened. I got an appendix in there called Math Not Myth in terms of really looking at how we actually lost that election and understanding some of the points we've covered here, that um, Trump did not get the majority and does not represent the majority. And I actually think we have to have to carry ourselves with that confidence. So in a lot of ways, it's the, the things have just gotten more progressive and more clear because I've just gotten more um, brown, frankly. The percentage of uh, uh, people of color in the 2016 election was 30%. It was 29% when, when Obama Obama ran. And so, I mean, there's a reason. It's not like that Trump has some uh, unlo- illogical obsession with immigration. They understand that that's how they're going to try to make the country whiter again. So they're focused on like a laser on immigration issues because of what the threat that that represents to the old way um, of being. So fundamentally, things have only gotten more progressive and the majority has gotten larger although it splintered and did not come out in 2016. And so that's the challenge in front of us, is can we reassemble and re-inspire and reinvest in 2018 and then heading into 2020? And, the, and well, I, it got finished. Well, yeah, I'm just saying that the numbers show that that is the path to victory and that nothing that happened in 2016 uh, undermined the fundamental formula for victory that, Obama showed in 2008-2012. So given what you just said, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being success, where would you put things right now for 18? I think for 18, I'd put it at a 7 or an 8. 
that if you look at the percent that that there's a, there's a, we have a significant body of uh, evidence from all these special elections that there's a demonstrable statistical uh, enthusiasm gap. If that gap persists, Democrats should take back control of the House and potentially even the Senate. And then heading towards 2020, um, I think that the I think I would say it's more likely than not that unless if we can avoid the kind of fracturing the Jill Stein, um, uh, the Jill Stein's increase in Michigan was greater than the margin of difference in Michigan. So if we can avoid that level of fracturing, um, that the Democrats should take back the White House in 2020. Steve Phillips, founder of Democracy in Color and author of Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. The second edition is just out. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.